I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no debunking. I got nothing for the rotating tagline. Welcome to Encounter 53, X Marks the Spot. In this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the work and ideas of Michael Barton, who used the pen name Michael X. He was a contactee, but one of the much less well-known ones, and his work ranged from things that we've come to expect from 1950s and 60s contactees to more specific topics exemplified by booklets such as Venusian Health Magic. Before we get into Michael X. Barton, however, listener Jonathan chimed in with some additional information related to our listener question episodes. The question about Native American UFO theories was covered, he told me, in an episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy that featured Maurice Chatelaine in an overview of, quote, early Earth visitors, one of the several ancient astronaut-focused episodes, if I recall my In Search Of correctly. In this episode, they also presented Preston Monangi, who claimed to speak for the Hopi people. According to his entry at medicinemangallery.com, Menengi's prominence was more as a jeweler, but on television, he had a much more interesting tale to tell. These drawings indicate a connection between the Indians of the American West and travelers from other worlds. Hoping for an answer, we spoke with Preston Monongi, member of the secretive Hopi Kachina Society. The legends definitely tell of the of these spacecraft and people riding in them and uh, making contact with us, which they have uh, several times uh, in, the, in the just in the past, not too long ago. I would like to really go into it more, but I cannot go into it more because our religion forbids it. Always the best way to avoid talking about anything you don't want to or can't talk about. Just say your religion forbids it. Whatever religion it might be, I'm sure it works. If, by some chance, you're not in the loop on In Search Of, if you're some sort of young person or something, it's well worth checking out. I have many fond memories of being a kid watching it in syndication on Sunday afternoons. And thank you again, Jonathan, for pointing me in that direction. Okay, last bit of housekeeping. Uh, In today's episode, Michael X. Barton is not the same as Michael X., born Michael DeFritas, the Afro-Caribbean revolutionary and civil rights figure who was convicted of murder in 1972 and executed at the jail in Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago in May 1975. Do not get these two fellows mixed up. It can and will lead to embarrassment for you. With that out of the way, let's dive into the world of Michael X. Barton. Michael X. Barton was born in 1937 and, like many, was intrigued by flying saucers. In the mid-1950s, he visited Giant Rock and met George Van Tassel and eventually had his own extraterrestrial contact. Unlike many contactees of the era, Barton rarely spoke in public. When he did, it was for Daniel Fry's organization, Understanding. 
and we'll be covering Fry and understanding in the future, don't worry. He used a pen name, Michael X, and sometime in the 1970s left the saucer life for a job driving, I believe, for UPS. He died in 2003. So, unlike a lot of our subjects here, there isn't a lot to him, or at least isn't a lot to his story. Not a lot to him, that's pretty dismissive. There isn't a lot to his story, besides the writings he published himself, as uh, Futura Press was sort of his, his outfit, many of which were later republished by Gray Barker's Saucerian Press, and in more modern times, uh, by Timothy Green Beckley. We're going to examine some of these writings today to get a sense of the particular flavor of contact deism experienced and promoted by Michael X. Michael's writings usually took the form of lessons, relatively short pieces that he called mystic monographs, although sometimes they were called confidential treatises. One thing that makes me smile about these are the various warnings and disclaimers that appear on the title pages. Here's an example. Special note. Due to the unusual and occult nature of the various subjects presented in mystic monographs, they should be considered as confidential. The purchaser is requested to maintain the ancient occult law's silence as regards all secret knowledge, lest it fall into unworthy hands. If you do wish to lend them to close friends, first ascertain the sincerity of one desiring this knowledge. This disclaimer from one of his earliest collections explains the sources of the information he's going to present. Flying Saucer Revelations is based on scientific findings, UFO data accumulated by various researchers, intensive personal investigation, and mystical revelation by the author. Later on, however, the knowledge he shared would be from more limited sources. Statements in this course are based on scientific and supersensory findings. No claim is made as to what the information cited may do in any given case, and the publishers assume no obligation for opinions expressed or implied herein by the author. We're going to begin by looking at some of the mystic monographs that Michael collected in 1957 in a bundle called Flying Saucer Revelations. He begins the first part, Saucer People on Earth, by explaining what he is going to provide is, in his words, mystic knowledge secret knowledge. If it doesn't make sense to you, or to me, it's because the way we learn isn't designed for this kind of information, but the mystic secret knowledge is learned through a school of life. He explains, kind of. The fact is, Earth man is not the only tenant of this universe. He only thinks he is. That is where he makes a big mistake. There are countless other solar systems throughout this vast universe in which highly intelligent human life forms are, at this very moment, living and breathing the same as you and I. Many of these systems are not merely hundreds or thousands, but millions of years in advance of ours, and the beings who inhabit those other planetary chains have a great deal to do with your secret origin. According to many of the ancient teachings, all of the planets of this solar system are inhabited by intelligent beings. Now, I did not say physical human beings, such as are on Earth. It's mightily important for you to realize that some of the planets in our systems are peopled only by etheric beings. They don't have our physical bodies like we do, but they do have a very efficient etheric body, which they are very proud of, which serves them nicely in many ways. All beings, whether physical or etheric forms, are, of course, in varying grades of intelligence or awareness of that which is. Each planet, for example, in our system is said to be actually a school of life 
wherein the intelligent beings are able to learn certain vitally essential lessons in the true art of living. It's a good thing he included the disclaimer mentioning UFO data accumulated by numerous researchers in that uh, first part, because we see in this paragraph some of the ideas promoted by earlier thinkers. This came out in 1957 originally, so Adamski's well-worn trope about a cosmic school in which, of course, Earth humans are in the kindergarten, that was already well established. Even older, if not as well known, were the ether-based ideas of Mead Lane and the Borderlands research crowd, as we've heard on this show in the past. Michael continues discussing the school. Each school term lasts 2,500 years. Figuring in cosmic time, this is not as long as you might think. At the end of that planetary cycle, some evolutionary cataclysm usually occurs, such as the glacial age, the deluge, a polar shift, etc., which, quite naturally, eliminates the mass-minded or the ones who failed in the earthly school of life. At the crucial time, however, some great teacher of light and love appears on the planet. His purpose is to guide and direct the next class of intelligent beings who are arriving on the earthly scene for the first time. Jesus, Buddha, Zoroaster, Lao Tzu, Hermes Trimagestus, and Sanat Kumara, the Ancient of Days, were among the greatest of these teachers. You could name many others. Michael's conception of the cosmic school is far more literal than what George Adamski discussed, what with specific lengths of terms and things like that. He follows another contactee motif here by linking significant figures in Earth religion and philosophy to the broader world of the Space Brothers, and also by discussing ancient cataclysms such as uh, the Deluge or the Great Flood, um, and something that is going to be featured in his writings going forward, discussion of an imminent pole shift. He develops this theme throughout the remainder of Saucer People on Earth, and uh, it's actually spectacularly boring. So we're going to move to part two, in which he discusses the modern flying saucer wave, including some of the most popular contactees. On at least a dozen occasions, the space people have been known to land their spacecraft and converse with people of Earth. And at least eight persons from our Earth have assertedly been aboard their ships and had enlightening talks with the saucerians. Three persons, Dan Fry, George Van Tassel, and Orfeo Angelucci, assert they have not only been aboard a spacecraft, but have enjoyed an actual ride in the amazing craft. Or, in Van Tassel's case, a ride on the amazing craft. Saucer People on Earth concludes with some simple down-to-earth instructions on how to, quote, cite a saucer. 1. Get away from large cities. There is so much light and atmospheric disturbance around big cities, it's practically impossible to detect any saucer phenomenon in the skies. Try to spend a full weekend in the country or on the desert. Your chances of sighting a disc will thereby be increased many-fold. 2. Don't try to see spacecraft during midday. Sunlight makes them almost invisible. Wait until afternoon or evening or night before scanning the skies. You may even prefer to hold your saucer vigil all night long, then sleep during the daytime. 3. If at all possible, go where the flying saucers are reported to have been seen by other people whom you believe to be reliable. This would primarily be the desert areas of California, Arizona, New Mexico, etc., as these make the most ideal natural landing places. Uh, Just to jump in here, having grown up in the Midwest, I can confirm that there is nothing flatter anywhere than 
say, parts of Nebraska. So why isn't that a natural landing place? Why not the planes? Uh, of course, you know, flying saucers probably would crush wheat fields and things like that. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Back to, uh, back to the instructions. Four, form a definite habit of following your inner feelings. Let the gentle voice of intuition lead you to the proper place where a genuine sighting of a flying saucer can be made. Follow all leads. 5. Be persistent. Numerous trips to various localities might be necessary before you are rewarded with the amazing view you are now seeking. 6. Do not be skeptical. This mental attitude cuts you off from the desirable, attractive state of mind that is essential to success. 7. Familiarize yourself with the various kinds of sky objects that are most commonly mistaken for flying saucers, but are actually not. These include A. Weather balloons B. High-altitude balloons or skyhooks C. New type aircraft D. Unusual cloud effects The mention of skyhook balloons here is, uh, is pretty interesting. That, that was a type of balloon used for, for testing um, and things uh, by the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence, I think, back in the 1950s, and the infamous Mantell case where something, either a skyhook balloon or the planet Venus, but absolutely not a flying saucer, destroyed a pursuing aircraft. So it's interesting and, and perhaps, you know, unsurprising, actually, that he puts that in there. So, mystic monograph, I love that, mystic monograph. Mystic monograph number two is flying saucers at giant rock. If you're not uh, in the loop with Giant Rock and George Van Tassel, go to the archives at saucerlife.com and check out uh, Encounter 302, Ashtar Watches Over Us. Now, this is more of a short story than some of the other writings here, or at least it's an actual narrative. It begins with a cold open featuring Michael's friend, Dr. Nephi Cottom, seeing a flying saucer at Giant Rock. The sighting was, in Michael's words, quote, the exciting climax to a never-to-be-forgotten day. That day was March 12, 1955, and the sighting, experienced by, quote, thousands, according to Michael, took place at the Giant Rock Saucer Convention. Over a month after the convention, Michael and his friend Nephi felt the need to investigate further, especially since Michael himself had not been at the convention. But he did believe Dr. Cottom's story. This was because of the following evidence. Past experience has proven Nephi to be a remarkable individual. Through meditation and intuitive insight, he has gained access to healing knowledge which, if the world knew about it, would largely do away with the need for going to doctors. The individual would merely apply a sort of self-therapy and remain ever healthy. I'm curious as to what field Nephi got his doctorate in. Um, that information, however, is not forthcoming. On the other hand, Nephi Cottom was working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth, so there was no reason for me to doubt his integrity. All that I needed was more facts. Listener, your assignment for this week is to somehow describe someone as working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. So, the story continues. My personal knowledge of Giant Rock Airport and the men and women who lived at the Rock was, at the moment, rather sketchy. I knew only that the man in charge at Giant Rock was one George W. Van Tassel. It was my impression 
that George operated a private airport there in Yucca Valley and was a licensed airplane pilot. How does one get an impression that someone owns an airport and is a licensed private pilot? That seems a weird way to put it, but I... Now, given what Michael X talks about and other things he would discuss with mental powers and things, it might be that he literally claimed to have a psychic impression that the man owned an airport. Um, But it just seems odd. I have an impression that so-and-so works as a mechanic at a muffler shop instead of, I've heard that so-and-so works as a mechanic at a muffler shop. Okay, anyway, back to the story. Also, I was aware that George had written an account of his contact with the space people and the ride that he had in one of their interplanetary airships. That, in a nutshell, was all I knew about the mysterious activities of George's group at Giant Rock. Remember, I had never been there. It seemed to me, however, that George Van Tassel was one person who understood some things about flying saucers that most people, including yours truly, didn't know. If George was actually in personal contact with the saucer people, then he logically must have received certain information from them, which to us would be tremendously vital. Reasoning along those lines, I concluded that a field trip to Giant Rock was in order. I asked Nephi if he could join me. Surely, he replied. How about leaving Los Angeles at 6 a.m. on May the 8th? I had an impression that Nephi wanted to leave Los Angeles at 6 a.m. on May the 8th. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Last one. Well, actually, I might interrupt more. I don't know. Fine, I agreed. An early start was always a good idea. It was quite a distance out to the desert from the city center. Then, too, we planned to return to L.A. in the evening of the same day if all went well. On Sunday morning, the 8th of May, we drove to Giant Rock. By taking the superhighways, which had recently been completed between L.A. and San Bernardino, the trip to Yucca Valley, although more than 100 miles, seemed like a breeze to us. Yes, that's right. I kept in the part where they marvel at the cool interstate highway system that got them from L.A. to San Bernardino in very little time, despite it being more than 100 hours. I like the interstate highway system. It's my show. I will leave in the bits about the interstate highway system and take out flying saucer stuff to make room for it if I have to. Almost before we knew it, the dry desert land was stretching out in front of us. Soon we found ourselves bumping over an unpaved dirt road in the direction of the private airport. The terrain became more scenic. Instead of uninteresting flat desert, huge rocks and boulders of all sizes lay scattered about. Nephi pointed to a small sign at an intersection in the road. It read, Giant Rock Airport. Oh my gosh, are they going to follow the sign? We followed it. Oh good grief, I was worried for a second. They get out of the car at Giant Rock, and they notice that there's about a dozen people there, a baker's dozen, including the the two of them, they said. There's no convention going on. This is just a day at Giant Rock, with George Van Tassel showing them around. This is how Michael X describes George Van Tassel. He was a well-proportioned, intelligent-looking individual. I mentally cataloged him as a sturdy, salt-of-the-earth Dutchman. A sturdy... Salt of the Earth Dutchman. So he shows them around, and then they're looking at the sky and talking of this and that. Then they go inside, and Van Tassel begins to show them photos and drawings of of various spaceships. And this is what one of the pictures shows. One of the pictures showed a great cloud shaped like a huge bowl hovering about half a mile above the Earth. 
It was clear that the cloud was more than it appeared to be. George explained to us, That is actually a saucer camouflaging itself within its own force field of energy. To our physical eye, it looks like a large, swirling cloud. Okay. Unusual cloud effects was literally one of the seven things, or one of the handful of things in his seven ways to sight a saucer, that Michael X specifically said, a lot of people mistake these for saucers, so don't do that. But no, George Van Tassel said, oh, that's that's not a, a cloud, that's a flying saucer disguised as a cloud, and suddenly it's okay. I don't mean to sound angry. Um, actually, one of my favorite UFO things is when people point to large clouds and try to explain that it's really a spaceship. It's just disguised as a cloud. So anyway, they continue their discussions with Van Tassel, look at some of George Adamski's photos, and then get into the subject of energy, specifically the motive force that powers the saucers. Basically, it's all about light. Light is really the basic universal power. It passes constantly through your body, maintaining life. It causes planets to spin, nebulae to evolve, suns to shine, and really runs the whole universe. Nephi and I both nodded our heads to show that the idea made sense to us. We felt ourselves to be on the verge of some truly tremendous discoveries about life. Free energy, continued George, is free. That's where the rub comes in. Imagine, no more light bills to pay, nor gasoline to buy. No more special money interests. All you can use would be free. They can't patent the power that runs the cosmos. Everyone would be using free energy. It's so simple any good mechanic can make the equipment for utilizing it in a million ways. That would upset our world economy, I commented. Imagine, no money system. Authorities are trying hard to prevent the inevitable from happening, George said. That's why they're hiding their findings about flying saucers. They are mortally afraid that the public will find out about the free energy that powers the universe. Free energy is free. Can't really argue with that in any significant way. It sounds a little goofy, but honestly, authorities covering up alien technology because it would disrupt the economy is probably the most enduring UFO-related storyline outside of the extraterrestrial hypothesis itself. Alien tech, as an economic and technological disruptor, is a nearly constant theme from the contactees all the way up to the disclosure and exopolitics trends of, of today. The visit with Van Tassel ends, and in the third mystic monograph, Secrets of the Saucer People, Michael begins his own contactee journey. He fits into more of the channeling or spiritual category of contactees discussing concepts such as Vril energy, something from Edward Bulwer-Lytton's 1871 novel, The Coming Race. That novel featured Vril, I just like saying Vril, as the energy source of a hidden underground people. It's outside the scope of this episode, but some within theosophist circles believe the novel to be kind of a low-key revelation of occult knowledge and, and believed that Vril energy and, and all these things might be real. Michael X seems to agree with that viewpoint. Occultists know that by utilizing the personal energy known as Vril, it is possible to raise the personal vibrations to an ultra-high frequency or speed. Thought vibrations may then be conveyed on that high frequency to any region in our solar system. As most students of the esoteric science realize, there are seven ethers. Later on, we shall study these ethers more closely. Four of these ethers are called respectively 1. The chemical ether, 2. The life ether, or prana, 3. The light ether, 4. 
the reflecting ether. The final three ethers are of such a sacred, spiritual nature that only the highest adepts are permitted to utilize them for mystical and occult purposes. For purposes of contacting the saucer people, one only need make use of the light ether. The reason for this is that they are beings of light in the fullest sense of the word. Michael contacts the space people by mind power one night, laying on the roof of his home. He repeats the message, Michael of Earth calling Venus, come in Venus, come in Venus, over. And eventually, his efforts bear fruit. At 2 a.m., an amazing thing happened. Michael. 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 It was an extremely beautiful voice, clear and bell-like. Instinctively, I opened my eyes. No other human being was in sight. I was entirely alone in my cot in the darkness, and only the stars and the shimmering moon were visible. A vivid dream, I thought to myself as I closed my eyes to resume sleeping. Then I knew this was not a dream, but a reality. A voice was speaking to me, slowly and distinctly, repeating my name. I responded by means of mental telepathy the best I could. Who are you? Was all I could think to say. For I still thought it was possible that my mind might be playing tricks on me. I am a human being, much like yourself. My planet is the one you call Venus. We have intercepted your communication by telethought and are pleased to make this contact with you. We have known of your work along the lines of occult science and consider it good. You and your companions are moving in the right direction. It is our purpose to guide you from time to time without superimposing our will upon yours. I am not at liberty to reveal certain details in regard to this planet, but questions of a general nature can be answered freely by us. The questions and answers are unexceptional, especially if you've read other Contact e-books. The space people are human, for the most part. Space travel is routine and safe, for the most part, but accidents happen. Venus is fully human habitable and is a complete paradise. And of course, the reasons they are here are not entirely unfamiliar to us. We come come to guide guide mankind mankind on Earth into the more harmonious harmonious spiritual spiritual life. life. Our purpose is to show Earthlings the secret of all evolution into a higher, grander form of expression and awareness. We are here to inspire man to a complete dedication of self to the purpose of the Creator. This is in truth the great work to which many are called, but few are chosen. Your mind is God's mind, whether you realize it or not. For there is but one mind in the cosmos. When you consciously know that, You begin begin to serve serve the higher higher ideals ideals which your spirit spirit knows. Further discussion in this collection builds on the occult and spiritualist elements that Michael had been introducing little by little. He connects the knowledge of the space people to a book called OSPI. I I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's capital, all capitals, O-A-H-S-P-E. According to the book itself, It is, quote, a new Bible in the words of Jehovah and his angel ambassadors, a sacred history of the dominions of the higher and lower heavens of the earth for the past 24,000 years, together with a synopsis of the cosmogony of the universe, the creation of planets, the creation of man, the unseen worlds, the labor and glory of gods and goddesses in the Ethereum heavens, with the new commandments of Jehovah to man of the present day, end quote. This book appeared in 1882 from John Newborough, who received it, he said, through automatic writing. Like others in the 1950s saucer scene, Michael X was just as, if not more, rooted in older occult and spiritual traditions as he was in the space-age world of extraterrestrial craft. 
Subsequent books from Michael X would concentrate on Venusian healing methods, going back to the sort of thing that his friend Dr. Nephi Cottom talked about, using the power of the mind to heal the body. This was apparently Venusian, as well as instructions for contacting the aliens. And this was done, even though Michael didn't use one of these, apparently, his instructions for how Michael contacts the space people involved an item called a telelith, or a psychic stone. One strand of Michael X's UFO writings that would straddle the worlds of UFOs with other elements were his two books on Nazi UFOs. These were, if not the first, then among the first books that did not just discuss disc-shaped aircraft developed by Nazi Germany, those had begun appearing in the 50s, but explicitly connected them to the UFO craze. Nicholas Goodrick Clark, in his 2002 book Black Sun, Aryan Cults, Esoteric Nazism, and the Politics of Identity, credits Barton with being the first to connect, quote, post-war flying saucers and Nazi fugitives in the Southern Hemisphere. He did this in his book, We Want You, Is Hitler Alive? As far as I can tell, this book was originally published in 1960 by Barton's Futura Press, but reprinted in 1969 by Saucerian, and 1969 is the date that usually you see. There was a subsequent book, The German Saucer Story, that came out in 1968. Michael X's handling of these topics linked the UFOs seen by many across the world to secret Nazi bases and saucer factories in South America, South Africa, and... Dun-dun-dun, Antarctica. As related by Adam Gorightly and Greg Bishop in their A is for Adamski book, after publishing the Nazi saucer books and talking about Hitler living in Argentina, neo-Nazi groups in West Germany, neo-Nazi groups in the United States, and other topics, Barton became increasingly paranoid, leaving the saucer world behind. When Timothy Green Beckley negotiated reprinting Michael X's work, Barton specifically excluded his Nazi UFO work from the deal. So what else is there to say about Michael X? Not a lot. Books on Venusian healing techniques and the like tended to be very similar to one another. His Nazi UFO books are very rare, even compared to his other output. In many ways, he's a footnote in the saucer scene of the time, but also the extensive connections that he makes to older occult-related materials, as well as the groundwork he lays for later Nazi UFO writers, particularly Ernst Zundel, make him worth looking at. Despite the small footprint he left behind, Michael X's work represents the multifaceted nature of the saucer life. As last time, for more on Michael X and other contactees you've never heard of, check out A is for Adamski by Adam Gorightly and Greg Bishop. Or rather, A is for Adamski, because I can never say it the same way twice. There's a link to that book in the show notes, as well as to Goodrick Clark's Black Sun, which is a very interesting study. There's a whole chapter on sort of UFO stuff. Um, there's also a link to an online version of Michael X's Flying Saucer Revelations. Next time... We're going to look at what happens when an April Fool's joke happens two months late. Stay tuned for Encounter 54, No Alternative, in which we'll look at the very strange story of Alternative 3. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. 
You can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or anything else that you want to. There's links on the website. The Saucer Life Encounter 53 is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.